Welcome to DBPA, the Drunk Bitches Podcast. I'm Jamie. And I'm Sarah. Each episode, we pair a wine with a topic where you get more lip with each sip. So let's get started. But first, pass the wine, bitch. Welcome to our episode on Kith and Kin. Who's in your tribe? Dun dun. Dun dun. Uh, Kith and Kin means friends and family in Old English. And today we're going to talk a little bit about, um, well, first we're drinking the wine, Kith and Kin. It's a <laughs> 2000, <laughs> it's a 2015 Cabernet from Napa Valley. Yes. And we're going to be talking about, uh, the importance of having a close circle of family and friends and, um, what really that involves. And then also we're going to talk a little bit about the book Tribe by Sebastian Younger. So yeah. Gonna Which be, is going to be exciting. I admittedly have not read the book. Sarah's read the book. I've read excerpts from the book. But we're going to get into some of those topics because it's uh, it's it's very interesting to kind of sit back and think a little bit about what society is today. Yes, this is a this is a little from. bit of a thought provoking episode. I yeah, think I think so too. Not so, that oh I mean. <laughs> wait. Okay, I'm, I am going to pop this August open. 30th is Cabernet Sauvignon That's day. exactly what I was going to say. So this is going to come out a day late, but happy, again, belated Cabernet Sauvignon day. Yes. Uh, and we're excited to share this wine with you. It actually, um, it runs about $30. And it is, uh, oh, nice. The, the guy that I actually bought this from said this is one of his favorite top five wines so i was amazing i'm excited to try Wait, top five it. yeah he told me it was one of his top five favorite wines so um, this this is um this cabernet is it's only one of the lines that this winery yes. has so which this is pretty cool right so this is round pond winery um so they are actually they're in napa valley uh, but they are i'm gonna uh, keep pouring i feel like this aerator is not <laughs> It's really not like coming out very very quickly. Yeah, it's gentle. <laughs> it's gentle. Ooh, it's very that? dark. It is. It's very. It looks kind of purpley. It smells really good. <laughs> um. So, like I was saying, Round Pond, Round Pond Estate Vineyards uh, is located in Napa, but actually in Rutherford. Okay, which is further north in Napa Valley. Yes, and it is only six miles. But um, in that in six total. in that six miles, um, there's other really famous uh, vineyards around them, like Cake Bread, Frog's Lee. Oh, one of your favorites. Uh huh. Uh huh. Camus. Uh, so like some bit pretty big names in the Napa world. So oh, it smells so good. Okay, let's cheers. Cheers to one of my favorite in my tribe. Oh my god. Oh, cheers to you, girl. You win my tribe. <laughs> You my kid and my kid. <laughs> oh my god, I'm gonna spit wine out. This is this delicious. Is so good. High five to that. Yeah, high five yeah. to that one. Uh, I am very intrigued. So I know this oh is like gosh. our what fourth Cabernet in. I am loving this. I feel like this has more of a ruby tone than some of our other ones, which I think tend to be a little bit more like bricky red. Uh, this, on, on the eye, it almost looks like a zen. Excuse me. I don't know why I just choked on myself. <laughs> um, because it's so, because it does have more of that pinkyish. It's like really dark. But then it lightens towards the it's rim. It's got that, yeah, it's got that, that like ruby color. Not that cab isn't, mm. but I just, if I would just look at this and smell it, I would kind of think it's almost like a zen. Mm. 
This is high ABV, isn't it? <laughs> uh, 14.9%. Okay, I felt it. I felt it. So basically 15%. Yeah, I, I definitely felt that. And I know, ooh, it's like, it actually lingers too. You know, it kind of like the juices just get all in like the nooks and crannies in your mouth and it just... It's super smooth. It hangs out. It really... This is a 2015. Yeah. So it... Yeah, I'm surprised. The tannins are present, but they're... It's definitely very smooth, very round, I'd say, in the mouth. It's very... Oh, it's Let's tasty. let it open up a little bit. Okay. And then we can kind of look at what the winemaker says, too. Yeah. Um, so, you know, the... the We've talked already a lot about Cab, but I think that the um, the winemaker and the vineyard is a, is in a really interesting place. So I thought yeah. we could kind of delve into some of that um, about our... our our winemaker. Our winemaker. Yeah. So this is the McDonald family. Yep. And it was, so it was originated in 1980s. Yes. That's uh, when the parents, so they're um, right now run by son and daughter. Okay. So the parents bought the winery or the land in the 1980s. And I think they made their first wine in 1992. Yeah. And this was it. And they made it kith and kin to serve to their own family and friends. That's so sweet. I know. I feel like that's what your husband and it was, was just talking about yeah. doing. Yes, he was. <laughs> Literally like 10 minutes ago. Uh, that, that's pretty awesome. I mean, and do you think that that... Do you think that that's sort of how people, maybe back then, maybe not as much now, but back then, like, maybe sort of started? It was sort of, let's just try this out and kind of see see how it goes. Because so much of winemaking is science, but it's yeah. also like a, you kind of need to try things out to see what's going to work. And before things got extremely scientific like they are now, you know, you kind of had to get a sense of what where the grapes were going to do best. and you know. Yeah, I think so. And I also always think to myself... In the 80s, like how much was the land there? Yes. <clears throat> you know, because now it's on, so, I mean, it's so expensive now. So expensive now. But back then, like how much was it? So, so now the vineyard is 362 acres. Okay. They primarily grow cab. They're known for, this is their entry level wine. The Kith and Kin line. Yes. Okay. They do have some higher end wines. Okay. Um, but, oh yeah, I did see a couple other, um, what it was like a gravel series and they have proprietary wines and stuff like that. So they primarily grow caps, so Cabernet Sauvignon, Sauvignon Blanc, Petite Verdot and, and Merlot. Yep. Uh, so that's, I mean, mostly red, which doesn't surprise me. What does surprise me is that I don't see Chardonnay on this list. Oh, cause it's California. Yeah. Napa. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I almost feel like it's like, it's so rare to not see a winemaker from California, especially the Napa Sonoma regions that don't make a cab and a shard. Mm-hmm. At the, I don't know. That's just something I've noticed. That's a fair point. Um, they have a lot of sustainable practices. Yeah. And they also have some interesting, um, I think really cool. I'm very intrigued by some <laughs> of their making? methods. Do you want to uh, tell me what you're intrigued about? Okay. So the two things that really intrigue me, well, one intrigues me, one intrigues me more. Okay. The first one is that they, to maintain balance and reduce yield, they limit the vine to two clusters per shoot and make sure that they don't touch each other. So they're like, that's like a lot of work. That is a lot of work. And I know that they hand harvest, but that means continued maintenance. Like I would imagine 
a lot of people run through their vineyards like relatively frequently. But if you're going to do something like that, I just can't even imagine. And 362 acres. Yeah. What you have to do. How many people you have to employ on a regular basis. They walk through their vineyards daily. Oh my God. Yeah. They must get some good steps. I hope they're wearing their Fitbits. (laughs) How many? It's like probably 20,000 steps a day. I can't even imagine. Yeah. Um, Well, I'm for sure it's more than person. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I, I'm sure too. But, but that's the thing. Like how many people do they actually have doing that? Uh, and I hope that they aren't there in the middle of the day. Cause damn, it gets hot. Um, so the other thing that I thought was even more interesting than that. Okay. This just boggles my mind. Hand harvesting. No, okay. not that. Cause people do that. And right. Yeah. This is a quote. So they use, they utilize advanced technology to maintain hydration levels in the soil, which continuously regulate temperature to within a fraction of a degree, ensuring quality and control. So they are mechanically controlling the temperature of the ground. Well, hydration. Wasn't it hydration? Well, well maintaining hydration, hydration levels of the soil, levels. but it regulates it to a specific temperature. So that's, that's managing the temperature of the ground. Uh, How I don't do you know. do that? So they, they're big, their philosophy is like using modern technology, but still like using sustainable mm-hmm. and uh, <clears throat> sustainable practices and like still having a very hands-on approach. Yeah. So it's like this, like kind of the best of both worlds, right? So you're, you're still handpicking, you're still like really, you know, using sustainable practices and, oh, and, yeah. and doing all those important things that I think that we want from a wine. I, yeah. I you're agree. using technology to maybe to make it, to, to most likely make it better to and make to your practice things. better. Yeah. And to, to have a more controlled environment, it sounds like what surprised me was that this bottle is actually, you got this for what? Only $30. Yeah. $30. Um, and a lot of their other wines are more expensive. Yeah. Cause we did a little bit of research cause when Sarah told me it was like $30, I was like, say what? I was like, Oh my God, this is actually, I, with all of that technology that they have and all of the their methods about going through on a daily basis, I was like, God, you have to be, that must be so expensive. And so I was curious how they were going to make up that cost. And that's with their other lines, it looks like, because they're, some of their wines are like 88. Yeah. And then some of theirs are like over a hundred bucks a bottle. Well, I mean. And like the proprietary blends. Right. Yeah. So anyway, so yeah, I mean, I, I was just thinking like, this is, this is actually shocking value. <laughs> I would say for what this It's offers. very, very good. Right. I mean, and with all those practices that we're talking about, yeah, their purpose is to maintain balance and reduce yield. So you know that they're all about quality. Oh, totally. So, I mean, I mean, yeah, that's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. so, okay. So this was, um, they balance it. Um, they do a lot of other things on the um, on the estate, if you will. So they they grow olives, um, Italian Spanish olives. They sell their olives and olive oil. Okay, this is so cool. What do they do? They have only one of two olive mills that are in the region. Really? Yeah, and they do wine. So you know how we were talking about you can go and get a wine tasting and you can have food pairings with it? Yeah, we talked about that yes. a couple episodes They ago. do wine and olive oil food, like brunch lunches. Oh my God, that sounds so So good. you can go and taste their wines and taste their olive oil. They make a, a red wine vinaigrette. 
Really? Yes. <gasps> so so and when GBP goes to Napa, then we need to go oh, yeah. here. I've already got this on my list. Okay. They have five acres of gardens and 12 acres of olive orchards. Okay. And in their five acres of gardens, the food that they get from the gardens mainly supplies like their kitchen for these tastings. No way. To supplement all this. Yeah. Oh my God. So you're literally getting like a from legit farm, like 20 feet away. Okay. Probably more, but like to your table. That's so awesome. I will lose my shit. Oh, let's go lose our shit together. Yeah, I mean, okay. I think it needs to happen. So right. we'll make it. We'll make it happen. <laughs> um, yeah, but I think it's so cool. And they do all their blending and bottling by hand. How is that possible? Wait, they bottle by hand? Yes. Okay. I watched a video from one of the guys from Some, mm-hmm. the movie Some, mm-hmm. just for those who are unaware or unfamiliar. So he had posted a video on like his Instagram or something like that. And it's him at this winery and they were actually testing the bottling equipment. And it is in fact like hand bottling. So like you would go and you would, but that seems ah, that you're right. That does seem kind of weird, but you know how, like, I'm sure that hand bottling could be similar fashion to like where it cuts you off after a certain amount that's gone through like the spout or what have you i'm not sure all i know is that we're only gonna know if we go this is true we have to plan accordingly next yes. year uh-huh. okay okay or this year <laughs> should we just like quit our jobs right now and go we should just like okay take three weeks off and just go to all these different wine <gasps> countries and then like okay we can't even get into that because i know crazy no, okay no a little bit about the rutherford area so like i yeah. said they're um you know they're in good company with all these different Wineries big name them. wineries. Yeah, big name wineries. Uh, the reason Cab is so good there is because they have abundant sunshine, warm temperatures, and moderate cooling influences. Um, also, the soil has micro deposits for years from the Napa and Russian rivers. Oh, really? Yeah. So it's like this combination of this like microclimate in uh-huh. Rutherford and then... Um, also the, uh, soil as well. I don't mean to sound ignorant, but like, Mm -hmm. so I know like when I went and maybe it's because I I didn't go that far North. So is this like in between, I know it's Napa Valley. So right. You're you're a valley between like mountains, hills, what have you. But so Rutherford is further North in Napa Valley. Um, but is it, does it get as chilly as say like Napa proper, mm, I'm know? not sure. Like, I'm curious if there are more dips. Uh, yeah. You know, if that's if it's influenced by the actual like. Ranges. I actually think it's warmer, but I I could be okay. wrong. I'm not sure exactly the differences in the temperature between Rutherford and Napa. In what is it the top- the topography? Uh-huh. Is that like that's like mountains, regions, plains? Yeah. That's like hills, right? Valleys. What your land looks like. Topography. Sixth grade. <laughs> Sixth um, grade called. <laughs> Sixth grade called. They're telling you to shut up, Jamie. Okay. So that, no, that's actually really cool. So, uh, and this, so this particular wine, this Kith and Kin, mm-hmm. is primarily from their actual estates. However, they do pull the grapes from different areas of Napa. So yes. it's not... It says its heart is rooted in Rutherford. Yep. So it's it's actually kind of a good meritage, right? Of K 
Cabernet from all over, like representative Napa Valley in and of itself and yes. not just of that tiny, you know, sort of micro um, AVA, yes. if you will. Which is really cool. I think that's cool too because it's like you kind of get, you know, a mix of what's around them and mm-hmm. um, yeah, I, 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 I think it's very cool. I think, I think I'm marveled Oh. By, oh. <laughs> I like the word. By the family and the, and their practices here. Uh-huh. I think it's really cool that it's not. It's just like they're the first generation, really winemakers. Yeah, you know, and I think that that's that's cool. And they they really, it sounds like, have these practices that they that they're not just applying to wine, but. To olives and... And just everything. And just everything. Yeah, just everything like, that they offer, it seems to have sort of that additional personal touch. And it's... So it's not just limited, like you said, yeah. to the wines. That's... They that's say, by combining the best of the old with the best of the new, Round Pond strives to create modern classics. With our powers combined. <laughs> it sounds like the Justice Leaguers. I actually, I think that might be more Power Rangers, but I'm not sure because I never watched it. But they anyway. also say Power Rangers. I never watched that either. Anyway, so uh, they also say that their goal is to remain uh, true. Their goal is simple by remaining true to time honored traditions. We strive to bring you the best the Napa Valley has to offer. Over the years, we've cultivated a nurturing and sustainable relationship with our estate. So I think that's really cool. Yes, it's very nice to sort of hear that because I, I again, it's sort of a testament to what they pride themselves on. And so I feel like with a statement like that, I mean, obviously actions speak louder than words, but from what has been described, you know, it means that there is more of a painstaking love, I think, for what they're producing. And again, yeah. we talked about how they limit the yield to, you know, monitor the quality more so. I, that is very commendable, I think. Especially because... We should applaud them. We should... Okay. Okay. So now that that's happened... Now that that's happened, let's talk a little bit more. Let's get back into the just the quick wine tasting. But before yeah. we actually talk about what we... Yeah, I got to pour us a little more okay, so we ahead. can really get the full the full the effect. effect. So um, while she's doing that, um, this wine, although it is labeled as a cab, is actually a blend. Oh, tell me more. So it is primarily a cab. It's 85% Cabernet Sauvignon. Okay. It is 10%... Pe- ten, oh, my God. 10% Petit Verdot, which, as we learned, is one of their bigger grape makeups on yeah. their estate. 3% Malbec and 2%, two, oh my God, 2%, 2% Petit Syrah. Okay. So, you know, I know that we talked a little bit about that purpliness, the color. Yeah. That, whoop, it's probably that the Petit Verdot. Petit Verdot and Petit Syrah. Yes. That is definitely, because I feel like when we did the Petit Petit, that is very much a... Uh, that was very purple. And yeah. I think that we get a hint of it. It's like starting to get that inky color, but yeah, no, it is. I, I definitely feel like that's where it comes from. And this wine was aged 15 months in 30% new French oak barrels. And though it's a 2015, it was not officially released until March 1st, 2017, which makes sense when you think about the harvest fermentation process yeah. and the 15-month aging. Isn't this one... Um 
meant to drink young. Yeah, but you know when you talk about it is that's what they that's what they say uh, in their. I wine feel like you could notes. age this though. No, I feel like although it okay. So when we're t- when we talked a little bit about the tannins. Mm-hmm. Usually when you have like really grippy, very sort of abrasive, like in your face tannins, yeah. that's a wine that's indicative that it's going to be good to age. Right. Because as you age a red wine, those tannins are going to start to soften yes. and it's going to start to mellow out and sort of create a little bit more roundness complexity into a wine. Same thing applies with acidity. High acidity levels are typically going to come down as you age a wine. Right. This, I I don't think that the tannins are quite at that level that I would expect for an aging wine, even though this is technically a three-year-old wine. I think, I do think that this is sort of the perfect time to drink it. Okay. Maybe age it like a couple more years, but anything beyond that, I'm just not sure that this necessarily lends itself to that. Mm-hmm. You know? I don't know. So I have a hard time aging wines anyway, so <laughs> unless I buy it aged, uh, it usually is going to be drunk sooner. <laughs> so, um, what else do they say? Okay. Actually, wait, before we get into their actual tasting notes, uh-huh. let's say what we smell okay. and taste. So I do think that on the nose, we're getting, we're getting like that cooked plum. I feel like I'm pulling up plum. like yeah. dark, dark, dark berries, dark, dark, dark fruits. I do too. Yeah. And I'm curious if that actually has anything to do with the fact that we know how dark the wine itself is. If it's sort of like a, we're influenced by that. It's possible, but. Uh, I know that there are studies about that. We can get into that another time. (laughs) But I don't know. There might be a. It's perfumey to me. It's perfumey and it's, it's. You feel like floral characters or. No, I don't feel floral characters. I feel like the. I feel like I do pick up some oak. I do pick up oak, for sure. I think sure. it's the combination of, like, the alcohol and the fruit oh, and the oak. About that. You know? It's yeah. giving me this, like... I mean, it smells good. I feel like it's, like, autumn, like, warm, like... It's very much like a, like a cool weather. Like, mm-hmm. you smell it and you just feel like... It's, like, almost like, you know when you mull wine or, like, yeah. something or mull spices over the stove? I feel like that's what it it reminds me of. Okay. I don't um, get that too much, but I, I I see what you're saying. I have positive connotations with this one. It's good. It's uh, good. On the taste, I get like again dark fruits. Like yeah, like I get really dark fruits. Like black I get berry. blackberries. Mm-hmm. Maybe a little bit of like cherry, but not like regular cherry. Like a like a. Um, have you ever had those cherries? They get those really good maraschino cherries, not like the normal ones and the the bright red ones no, in the that's jar. All I'm thinking of. But like, there's these gourmet maraschino cherries that are like super Say expensive. What? Where do you find these? Uh, I've just had seen them at bars and like gourmet shops. Okay, that's what that reminds me of. They're like super dark, and they just got this like really good. I don't know flavor. I love that. I feel like I'm missing out. Like I'm deprived and have been living I'll under get a you rock. Some. I'll find you. We'll some. find some. Yeah, let's go to the public market. We'll find them. I promise you. Um, and then I get a little bit of like a tint of licorice and spice. I do get the spice. Maybe licorice. I have a harder time pulling out just because I'm not a huge fan of black licorice. It's just it's but so ever subtle. It's right there. Yeah, like just an underlying because yep. it does have a little bit more of like a. A little extra kick, and I feel like licorice 
Is it anise? Is that the spice yeah. itself? Yeah. And fennel, I know, can tend to have uh, fennel can have licorice tendencies. Yep. Yeah. So I, I know that I've had some fennel that yeah. has more of that. And I, I think you're right. I think it's just it's something that's like an underlying, like supporting note, but it's not an overwhelming. It's just there and provides a little extra depth to the. It's very well wine. balanced. I will give it that. Yeah. It's so really good. Um, what's interesting, though, based on our description and based mm-hmm. on the tasting notes from the winemaker, it's themselves. It says that the wine's bouquet prepares the palate with aromas of cherry jubilee, cocoa-dusted red berries, and subtle hints of spice. Red fruit driven, the supple entry teases with bright notes of fresh cherry and licorice immediately lead into darker, fleshier notes. Um, I just don't know how much I can jump on that Yeah, I mean, I think parts of it are true. I agree. But I, uh, the, the, the fresh bright, cherry, the bright, the bright red notes. yeah, uh-uh. and the bright cherry, no. I'm not feeling I that. don't think so. But, like, the end part is right, I think. Yeah. But that almost sounds like a pinot. It does a little bit, but then it, it goes on to say this full-bodied Cabernet okay. shows a beautiful balance of fruit, acid, spice, and tannin, I, which I wholeheartedly agree yes. to. I just am not sure that I really... I'm not sure I really agree with the, the flavors, but here's the other thing. So this was released in 2017, so they probably, before they released it, tasted the barrel, right, and came up with these. But this has aged an additional amount in the bottle. And so I think that as these wines age, you tend to get, you can get sort of the, the bright fruits actually start to get more cooked, older, Well, I do darker. think it's interesting that they have a tasting spec sheet on every vintage. You don't see that with because you don't see that it does differ, but you don't see that with every vineyard. It should differ based on what we talked about a few. It's true. It should differ, (laughs) but you don't see that with every vineyard, right? So that's cool, but that does mean that that gives you a little bit of difference between your vintages and also like maybe you're right, maybe they wrote this like a year or two ago and it's a little bit different now. Yeah, you know. All right, cool beans. Yeah. The other interesting tidbit. I'm just. going to say this is that it was actually everything about these grapes happened a little bit earlier than normal and so it budded earlier than usual it was picked a little earlier than usual and so I think that that actually it says here the cooler conditions during fruit set left a slightly lower crop load than normal putting the vines in good balance while eliminating the need to drop fruit to achieve ideal ripening conditions. Mm-hmm. And we know that they already have limited fruit yields anyway. Yeah. And so I think that this is, you know, it, it says it, this helped concentrate flavors and with perfect conditions throughout the rest of the growing season, we attained ripeness earlier than any previous vintage. So this one sort of seemed to be in a boat like uh, above and beyond other ones uh, or in a boat by itself. Is that the phrase? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. But, uh, yeah, so very, uh, very interesting notes. And I think I, I love when these spec sheets are so particular and they give oh, you a little yeah. bit of extra detail. And they're about, actually like really specific yes, about things. Yes. I enjoy that too. They, I, I, I love it. I also feel like it means that the winemaker really like, you know, cares and puts their, Absolutely. their thoughts into that. Absolutely. And the last, the last piece that I would focus on maybe on this wine is that it does it has actually gotten some really good ratings and reviews 91 points for wine enthusiasts 90 points from wine spectator 
and this James Lobb. I'm I admittedly know. don't know who that is. I'm assuming that for him to be quoted, he has to be some big wine person. But the quote is, Napa Cabernet this good often costs a lot more. And I, I think that that's true. I mean, again, I was shocked to see this at $30 or to hear that this is $30 yeah. that you got it for. It's very good. Um, so I'm thinking that you're probably going to find this in the low to mid-30 range um, at local stores and stuff like that. So if, you know, I, I'd say this is not a bad Napa Cab to, to pick up. No, not at all. I think it's pretty representative of the area that you're in, um, yeah. especially, again, with who they're they're surrounded by their company and also um yeah i mean like it's a good entry level one if you're looking to have a very good quality wine yeah. for a decent price from a, i mean i'd say that this is a pretty reputable reputable not reputable <laughs> reputable winery just and it seems that their practices are really on point so anywho so as we go, kind of segue i will say that you know this Vineyard has been started by a family who has been passed down to family. And so it's kind of, and they obviously made it for their family and friends, Kip and Ken. And so that's why we chose it for this topic. Um, Topic, you know, we... Who's in your tribe? Who's in your tribe? Bitches. (laughs) Bitches. (laughs) So, uh... Sorry. (laughs) The, The book's title is Tribe on Homecoming and Belonging. And Sebastian Younger, he actually wore, wrote The Perfect Storm. Wasn't that a movie with George Clooney? Yes. I never saw it, but I do remember. I saw the movie and never read the book. Um, but he was also a war journalist, and he mm-hmm. lives in New York now. But he's pretty uh, famous. I read this book. We were talking about it, and it brought up a lot of topics that we think are pretty important in terms of, you know, where we are at as a nation, I think. And where everybody individual individualistically, how we are. Yeah. So you know, family and friends. Like it's so like common to be like, oh, your closest family and friends, and like, oh, you're at a, an event with your family and friends, or invite your family and friends to you know your wedding and all this. But what does that mean? I mean, in just what you described, I sat there and I was like, creating a wedding guest list. Mm-hmm. I mean, how many people go through creating a guest list and saying, I don't know those people. And maybe your spouse is also saying, I don't know those people. Right. And you wonder, like, you you do wonder, like, why why are they here? Because it's not, it doesn't fit within sort of this, this role and I think sort of what we're going to describe uh, right. coming up here. But I do think that... You know, even though he is a war, he was a war journalist, and I do think that from what I've read about the book in the first like thirteen pages that I did read of this book, um, that it does seem that he is focused on his experiences in war to some extent. But at the same time, I think what he's trying to do is say that there is a deep, deeply seated um, social structure, social um, aspect that comes about in war, but is also still very, very relevant to the broader population. Exactly. And talking about how things have changed. So let's talk a little bit about the book and then we'll kind of get into more of the topic. Um, But so in the book, he focuses on tribal societies. Mm -hmm. He talks about belonging, the human quest for meaning, and he argues this has really been lost in modern society. So sure. 
a lot of the examples he uses, the big ones are like the Indian tribe, and then he talks about, um, and we'll get kind of get into that, but he talks about why veterans have a high rate of PTSD. Mm-hmm. So he says they find it difficult to separate out harm from war from the intimacy of bonds of platoon life. Okay, so that's not that's a that's a a provocative and kind of big statement, right? Yeah. To say that they can't separate out war from the intimacy of bonds, like the harm from intimacy. So basically they they don't understand the difference, okay? It's weird because somehow that there is like that thin line between like love and hate. It's the same it's like the same thing. Well, almost. and you it's also think line. to yourself, okay, well, how could someone go to a war and come home and be unhappy? Like mm. Right? Yeah. You go to war, you see all these horrible things, like you should come home and just like be well, ecstatic. People think that you right? would come home and be ecstatic, right? Because you've missed out on, you know, you've missed your family and, you know, your friends from yeah. back at home. But at the same time, you've also forged these, you know, very different, I'd, I'd, I'd venture to say, I, you know, I have not been to war myself, but I would venture to say very different, but also extremely strong relationships with people who you've fought beside yeah and or served beside you know either way but so it's it's interesting because then it's like well can you really weigh these relationships on the same scale i would imagine that they would be largely different they're largely different because think about it platoon is like i mean you're basically you're basically a tactical unit Mm -hmm. and your combination of soldiers and probably like there's different levels of like lieutenants and whatever but your whole I mean, you kill. You would give your life for these people. Like it's yeah. it's life and death all the time. And so, like your relationships become much stronger very quickly. Mm, yes. And so, I think that that has a lot to do with it. I also think, you know, he kind of discusses the differences between short term PTSD and long term PTSD. Being oh, he like short term PTSD is not really PTSD. How okay? It's like it's more of like. Kind of like how you talk about like postpartum depression, right? Like in the initial stages of a woman having a baby, she's like, she might be going through all these emotions because you're going through all these emotions, but it doesn't really mean you have long-term, you know. It's more of an acute situation. Exactly. And that's what he talks about PTSD. That short-term PTSD is not necessarily PTSD. It's just kind of your psyche adjusting between the two differences. Yeah. Um, but long-term PTSD, there's a lot of things that he talks about in terms of that there's um, research showing that the likelihood of a veteran suffering PTSD, like long-term, is mm-hmm. actually, and this is quotation marks, in great part a function of their experiences before going to war. So basically, other like people who were abused as children, who came from dysfunctional families, who experienced yeah. the death of a loved one, are at more risk of developing traumatic disorders. And these elevated risk factors are present even if the person never went to combat. Okay. So leaving this co- close-knit group of people and fellow warriors and then returning to a very highly individualized and fractured civilian world is quote unquote deeply brutalizing to the human spirit. So basically, yeah. you're like, okay, 
That makes so much sense, right? Uh Uh-huh. So, like, you have a person who probably maybe has a bad family life, and then they go to war, and then they form these relationships, and I'm sure they see some crazy-ass shit, right? Oh, I'm sure. But they go to war, and they're with these group of men every day, and women every day, that they form these extremely close bonds with, and then they go, they come back home... And they're back to this fractured life. Yeah. Where you're, you know, and it, it, so that makes complete sense to me. Like, of course somebody would have, like, you've already seen tra- trauma from war. And then combined with that, you have not a good support system to begin with. Well, and that's the, that's the other thing. And I'm desperately trying to find something that I swear... I swear I read and now I'm 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 so such at a loss right now. But basically so you're sure you you came from you joined, you know, the arm the armed forces um after leaving your family and friends and maybe you were in sort of this disposition that was not really ideal. So you left to sort of find something new, right? Mhm. And you create these these very, very close and quick bonds with those who you're serving with. And again, even if you go to combat or not, when you are then like, you know, discharged. Thrust. Yes, and right? you're thrust into this. You have to go back and everyone thinks you're going to be so excited. But all of those people that you just spent however many months with, and it was like, they were probably like closer to you than your family may have been. And all of a sudden you're without them and maybe that you don't, maybe you don't have easy access to them, right? Like you didn't have easy access to your family while you were out. Like it must be so hard to go, to completely remove yourself. And that's, that's, I think that that's similar in nature to saying like, let's say you grew up in one area of the world, like one, you know, one town, you never left it. And for some reason you had to go somewhere else, whether it be for a job, a person or what have you you have none of that support in the way that you did before and that is jarring to human beings and I think how people deal with that it's very different and it can be a positive thing for some because it provides them new challenges and they really look forward to that but for other personalities that's just really awful they need that close-knit that that tribe, if you will, to be around them. And they feel like when they've distanced themselves further, that they no longer have that. Even though technology exists that we can, quote unquote, have Here, that. Here's the thing, you know though, I mean? about the technology portion. Yeah. Okay. So we're talking about one aspect. We're talking about veterans. But, I mean, there's there's a high amount of depression and increasingly so in the United States. Mm-hmm. Besides veterans. And why is that? Right. And that is because the, the, modern, the modern civilization that we live in, especially in, in countries like the United States, I'm sure like the UK and Canada are probably simil- in, in a similar situation. It gives us like this autonomy and basically like your value is, is measured by material things. And yeah. it's deprived us of like this sense of community and interdependence that we have, we have relied on for since evolution. Yeah. And so you you take you take that and you're like, 
Okay. Yeah. Why do people like Kate Spade? And I mean, why, why do these extremely wealthy people kill themselves? Like lots of questions for sure. I mean, like, why is that? It goes to the whole thing. Can't buy me love and money can't buy happiness. Right. Everybody talks about that, but like, I feel like what you're saying is that even more so it's, it is even more true today where everything about us we have, and I'm sure that there are plenty of people who do not follow celebrities and all that stuff, but like, I feel like you can't go anywhere, do anything anymore that is not somehow influenced by some sort of product or, uh, you know, some brand name of some sort. Commercialism and consumerism. It's unreal. That's what drives our society instead of community. And that is, is exactly what the whole problem is. And that's what you know, Sebastian Younger is trying to, I think, bring to light in his book. Do you think that, um, it, it seems to me like in thinking about this, that it is related to sort of those extrinsic and intrinsic motivations we talked about. Yeah. I think, I think it's like, it does have, has a lot to do with that. Everyone thinks that they're, if they can buy something that they think is going to be helpful for them, that they're going to be better off. Or yeah. something that will put them in a better social status, if you will. Yeah. And I think that that's where we're maybe finding more of these kind of like depre- mental health issues, if you will. Yeah. And I'm curious if people, you know, start to really remove themselves from sort of these extrinsic motivators. You know, if you're posting on social media and things like that for approval, if you really just kind of focus on like what makes you happy, you know, what do you really need that? Or what's going what do you experience? Do you want experiences more? Do you need more intrinsic values? Like, well, I feel like you can tr- slowly try to shift that. And I think it's also like most people are going to their, their most favorite memories are shared with people they love. Yeah. Whether it be family or friends, it's not like doing something with Amen. some, some <laughs> like high end, shit that you bought right so like as he kind of gets into his book he talks about um you know the how there's huge faults in our societies and especially in the wealthy societies because you dismantle sense of community because someone can basically live on if a wealthy person can live on their own without depending on anybody for anything and so that leads to clinical depression, anxiety, and chronic loneliness. Which, so, I mean, there have been studies yeah, saying there's that been so many studies. isolation is actually just as bad for you as, it's just as bad for you as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. Um, it's as dangerous as being an alcoholic, as harmful as never exercising, as tw- and is twice as dangerous as obesity. Yeah. I mean, these are those are huge chronic conditions that... Right you know, plague society today, but isolation and sort of keeping yourself away from the outside world or having that social network and having that tribe, it, it is just as unhealthy for you. And I feel like some people try to, I don't know, maybe convince themselves that yeah. it's better to be alone, but one is the loneliest number guys. So I'm going to just uh, read an extra, <laughs> and, but we're two here. <laughs> 
I'm going to read a little excerpt out of his book. So he says, a wealthy person who has never had to rely on help and resources from his community is leading a privileged life that falls way outside more than a million years of human experience. Financial independence can lead to isolation. Isolation can put people at a greatly increased risk of depression and suicide. This might be a fair trade for a generally wealthier society, but a trade it is. So, okay, take that, compare it to life... I'm going to say maybe... I'm just going to say 70 years ago. I'm sure it's less. Uh But... If you consider that, think about what life was like back then. Like people relied on their their community, well, on their neighbors. Whether it's like, oh, you have you have chickens. Oh, can we have your eggs? We'll give you some beef. And I know that you know there's there's a monetary transaction likely, but I'm sure that there was a little bit more sort of giving and taking, but reciprocal relationships. And I think that you know, the, the wealthy, the, the monetary, um, or financial things that you just talked about are, they sort of alleviate the need for that. And that's unfortunate because I feel like you do need to have a You don't need to rely on anyone if you have a lot of money, right? Like what do you need to really rely on? Cause you can buy whatever you, you buy whatever you need, but that's not the case, right? See, that's the problem. Like the whole thing about a vill- you need a village to raise a child, part of that is, like, people in other countries, like, not Still abide the by United that. States and the UK and Canada and, like, other countries similar to ours, they go by that still, right? Yeah. So, like, you have a family unit who is basically all within walking distance or whatever, short boat, right? I don't know. <laughs> Away. <laughs> Down the canal. Down the canal and through the roof. No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> um, but, you know, you've got all your family in really close proximity. And your first cousins are, like, your you're siblings. Yeah. Yes. And, like, that's how it works. And, like, everyone comes together for every event. And, and you have a child. And, like, the whole family bands together and helps you raise that child. Yeah. And... It's not just that you have a mom and a dad, but you have a mom and dad and uncles and aunts and all those people contribute. Second mom, second dad. Yes, like exactly. what, what have you? I mean, you know, it, you're right. And it, it sort of builds those relationships and, and helps because I think, I mean, there are studies to support this that mm-hmm. saying that having more of that close knit family and not just being surrounded by strangers, there's, God, there's some quote from somewhere that I was really trying to find. But it's about how, like, you could walk out today. You could walk outside and only encounter strangers, not encounter a single human being yeah. that you know. You can go to work, leave work, drive home, and you could not have a meaningful conversation with one person. And this can go on for several days. Yeah. Because you're not needed to. Right. And then there's also there's also studies to support, you know, sort of, especially in like child rearing, how like it is so important to have additional close adults there. And I know like I, I read some studies about like aunts and uncles and like the role that they serve for nieces and nephews and things of that nature. But it's like there is, it is beneficial for a child to have a broader audience of supportive and, um, reliable adults that they can turn to in times of need because there are some that they may not feel comfortable turning to with certain things and there are some that they would. Right. And I think this goes to sort of like the Dunbar's number too. 
Ah, that we were talking about a little yes. bit before. And I mean, again, I do think that Sebastian Younger's everything that he includes in the book, again, while it's primarily focused on, um, you know, sort of the milish, military aspect of this and sort of studies for that and tribal, um, experiences, it is still very relatable and applicable to life. Yeah. And I think that's his point though, is that like, it basically like this, what are we doing in our modern society? (laughs) What are we doing? What are we doing? We should rear our children differently. I love that. Exclamation point. Child rearing. (laughs) (laughs) I'm such a kid. (laughs) I'm like, Oh, child rearing. (laughs) Ha ha ha. So hilarious. So let's talk a little bit about Dunbar's theory because, I mean, I think that Explain that's... Explain it to me again. Because oh, okay. I admittedly didn't really know a ton about it. And I think that... Were you not paying attention? No, no, I was. But I really it's would okay like to... It's okay if you were. It. I don't pay attention a lot. I things. was, but it talked about like 150. Yeah. But then there are like certain buckets within that. And that's where I find it very interesting. So Dunbar was an anthropologist. Okay. An evolutionary psychologist. How the hell do you become that? <laughs> you dub yourself? No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. You have a lot of PhDs. Uh, I guess and so. That's... You study a lot of things. Did Dunbar study primates? I'm sure. Okay. Hominids. He, that is what he said. Hominids. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, he focuses on a single number, and that number is 150. And he says, he says that is a number of individuals with whom any one person can maintain a stable relationship. A stable, like... Stable relationship. Like, we're super close? Or, like, we're like, hey, I know you. This is, like, work people. No, no, no. Not, hey, I know you. Stable relationships. Casual friends. Oh, okay. Not acquaintances. No. Friends, I it's still so in the category. Basically, of this is like the people you'd invite to a large party. So I guess a okay. wedding. Okay, uh, one hundred fifty. Damn, that guest so, list could be. And this range could go. You know, so hundreds at the low end. Two hundred is for the more social people. Um, but he discovered that the number grows and decreases according to this like formula. I don't really know, but there, there's a rule of three. He has an algorithm. Yeah, there's a rule of oh. three. So 150 is your casual friends. Next step down, 50 is the number of people we would call close friends. Perhaps the people that you would have, like, at a home party or group dinner. Okay. You see them often, but you wouldn't consider them, like, your intimate friends. Then there's a circle of 15. You know, these are your friends that you confide in about, like, if you have an issue or Mm -hmm. a conflict or people that you, like, call and you're like, oh... Support group. Support group. But then the most intimate number is five. Wow. So that's your close support group. These are your best friends and probably family members as well. Okay. Um, so your deepest, darkest. So spirits. each of these buckets actually does contain <clears throat> or can contain both family and, and non-blood relatives. Yes. Okay. And then your, fi- like your five or 15 today might not be your five or 15 in like, you know, 10 years, but... That's well, sure. I mean, I right. feel like that's to be expected because of how, you know, we sort of move through these phases of our yeah. lives, you know, like going from like <clears throat> high school to college to real life. I mean, that's like an easy transition or to think about how that would change. Yeah, exactly. But, yeah. Because it's, it's a fluid theory. Yeah. Um, 
so he actually even found that, like, when he started researching this, that the average group size among hunter-gatherer societies was 148.4 people. Really? Mm-hmm. In, like, all of the studies that he done, that he's done? Yeah. So <clears throat> professional armies were, like, 150 from the Roman Empire to, like, 16th century huh. Spain, and then those were broken down into smaller units. Uh, companies, you know, are usually broken down into smaller units as well. Now, when was Dunbar's theory sort of placed out there? Um, Do you know? I don't know the actual year. Because I'm, <clears throat> I'm just curious. I mean, I actually, it may, I, to me, this actually makes a lot of sense right now, given where society is and how, you know, Distant, I would say that the majority of people are from the rest of the world. Because I'm, I'm, I'm thinking a little bit along the lines of like, okay, so like in society today, we have very, very busy lives. You know, it's sort of even in the workplace, I feel like there's an expectation that you're always, you know, always on the ready. Like you're like mm-hmm. on guard, like to do anything and everything. Right. And so does that play a role in sort of what this, what these numbers are or who your relationships are actually with? I don't think so. I think this is, so it looks like he, he made this observation in 1992. Okay. So it's tried and true. Yeah. But I don't think that, you know, this is like something that, um, doesn't actually, like that only applies to the modern, doesn't apply to translate. It translates tra- from, like, era to era, <clears throat> if you will. Exactly. Sorry. No, something in my fine. throat. Um, you need a drink, girl. <laughs> Drinking um, my wine. Yeah. Do you need some water? Are you good? Okay. So, I mean, I think that it's also interesting because it, this is something that we should say because Dunbar, this rule is sort of about truer relationships, right? Who you actually have, like, a relationship with. It's well, not like your Facebook friends... No, so that's the thing. We have all, like, we've ecologically kind of progressed and and technology has taken over. Okay, So our networks are bigger. So our networks are bigger, but that doesn't actually mean that our relationships are stronger. Aha. So you have uh, a Facebook friend list. The average, I think, is 385. Okay. Um, or th- which something in the mid thirties is the yeah. average Facebook friend list of the average American. That's those are not like, true. <clears throat> those casual friendships that you mentioned. Those are people no. like, oh, I went to high school with you, right? And I knew you fifteen years ago, but I haven't said a word to you. And you might be able to place those people in certain buckets, like these sure. are your family members, these are your cousins, like whatever. Sure. Um, but no. And then if you add like your LinkedIn. In your Instagram, I mean, you could get into like the thousands and, you know, research shows that you can only actually recognize people, uh, faces to names for 1,500 people. So come be friends with DBP Cheers. (laughs) (laughs) That was a really good plug. I wasn't expecting that. I like that. (laughs) But still, I, so that's, I mean, it's important because it's who you foster true relationships with and it goes deeper than sort of the the cursory like oh so-and-so just got engaged or so-and-so had a baby or whatever it's like congratulations i haven't spoken to you in so many years that's not a casual friendship even that's just like no no 
That's like keeping appearances. Keeping appearances. That's like if you walked into, you know, walked and saw a local like community bulletin board and saw something, you put a post-it note that says, this is a great idea. That's like the same thing. But that's social media, right? Because that didn't exist 20 years ago. Exactly, exactly. And so like people had to formerly, yeah. Shit. Yeah. (laughs) So like people had to like form real relationships. Like you couldn't, you didn't have. No one had 350 close friends. That's just not how it works. So let me ask you this. Because I think that, you know, when we see, when we talk about the eras and everything like that, you know, we talked about how before the social media, before, you know, changes in the, you know, how people lived, it was probably easier to be, have these casual friendships with like your local community. And so like all of your neighbors, you knew every single one of your neighbors. Right. I mean, I remember growing up, I knew every single one of my neighbors. Yeah. I don't know anybody that lives in my apartment building. So to transition, like how are there certain ways now that people tend to build these networks and build, you know, these buckets in today's society that is so reliant, I think, on technology? Yeah, I mean, there's different ways that you could do that. Like if you really wanted to like build buckets, like Like what are some tips in terms of like buckets of technology no 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 buckets of like how you like build your relationships oh sure yeah (laughs) i think some tips yeah so i mean like it's not about number right so quality over quantity so you gotta exactly this is like our wine this is is like our wine so you focus on the strength of relationships so focus on like your handful of people in your social social circle instead of trying to seek as many like acquaintances or friends as you can because really you cannot no one can uphold that many meaningful relationships. And then the problem is, is that your actual meaningful relationships will suffer. So yeah. that's not how it should I be. I totally agree. You don't need all of the likes from no. people that you don't know that are exactly. not. It is more fruitful and beneficial for all parties involved to have something that is more meaningful. And so some things that you can do, like actually have a legitimate phone conversation. Yeah, but people don't do that anymore. It's but about they texting should. and social media, yes. And we need somehow as a society, as as a nation, we need to make a stance that we need to get away from that and we need to focus more on human interactions I and agree. human relationships. I because totally agree. we are inevitably going to be our own demise by keep, by keeping on with this trend that we're doing. Yeah. And so like people need to feel a sense of belonging. That is, like, vital for... Hum- what do people do, like, when they don't... When they, like... I mean, you did this. You just picked up and moved to somewhere that you didn't know anybody. How did you do it? I think that, actually, it's... I'm glad you brought that up. Because I think that that has a lot to do with our modern society. Is you have families that are breaking apart and spreading apart. Because everybody's moving for school, for a job, for something. And, like, yeah. it is advocated as a good thing to move away for those things. And I'm not saying it's not. I mean, I did it. However, it does make it more difficult to ha- to find your community. Right? right. And not to say that you you can't. absolutely need to change your community exactly. either. I mean, you can definitely retain who your buckets are, but at the same time, it then becomes we get back into that lonely position if you don't find anybody right in your new situation. And so should we be focusing more on strength of relationships over success versus wealth? Mm-hmm. Success based on wealth? Yeah. I, 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 I think so. <laughs> I, I believe But so. I mean, no one's, people don't accept that now. 
And I think that that is something that we need to like kind of reemphasize. Exactly. So people need to feel a sense of belonging to a larger social group. They need to feel connected to family and friends. You need to feel like you belong somewhere. Yeah. And, you know, that could be, um, that could be in any number of venues, but it's just feeling like you belong to a group. Yeah. I mean, I, when I came back, when I came up here to Milwaukee after, I mean, when my husband was doing his residency before, I, I didn't really know like a ton of people. Right. But then when we finally like came back up here and it was like, nope, we're living here. I was like, oh, I do need to get to know more people. Yeah. And then you moved up, which is great. But, like, I also started to get to know some of the other wives. Right. And then I even, you know, I did one of those, you know, those meetup things. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. And it's, meetup is such a weird thing. I think I had heard about it before and I was like, that's kind of creepy. But it's actually not. It actually seems a little safer than, you know, some of the other ways that you can meet people sort of on blind dates, if you will. Wink, wink, Sarah, nudge, nudge. Uh, But I met some great friends and have broadened circle of friendships because I went to this rock climbing meetup at our local rock climbing wall, which was so, so random and bizarre, but you never know who you're going to meet. And, you know, it's okay to open up to people. Right. I mean, we just talked about how to find commonalities. A good friend of mine in Napa, yeah, in wine tour, which is still amazing, and I know you said it before. It's like not the norm, but still, like these things happen. There right. are perfect situations where it is almost like life, like des- like it's been designed to bring fate. you and said person together. Exactly. I'm not even going to get in my theories on fate. It's destiny. That's that's a different. That's another podcast. wine. We'll have to find another so, wine. Yeah. <laughs> but um, I think other tips is. You know, I think people nowadays in in modern life, we're all busy. Yeah, we're all busy. So but hard. what are we busy with? Some of some things that we're busy with are just busy I, to I be busy. Like, yes, mm-hmm. I feel like you really don't have to do half the things that you're doing because sometimes a relationship conversation, not like spousal or yeah significant other conversation but like if a friend or a family member reaches out and is like hey do you want to do this and you're like oh man you know i wish i could but i really need to like write this paper or whatever like you probably do need to write that paper but you probably don't need to do it at that point in time i feel like and we so, talked about this before yeah. and how it's like you know what sometimes it's okay to forego like to put on the back burner just something that is like so stressing. Yeah. In order to do something that sort of takes your mind away, really gives you sort of, I'm going to say it again, that intrinsic motivation. Like you have these good feels, these good vibes from hanging out with your tribe. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Your friends, or maybe a friend or family member needs you for something. Yes. And then that definitely should take precedence. Yeah. So, you know, there's that. Also, like, if you don't have people that you're, you know, close with and you just move somewhere new, like, pick up a new hobby, join a club or, like, you know, a book club or, like, you said, you know, go to a meetup or do something that interests you. Go to wine tastings. And be open to other people. (laughs) Yeah, go to wine tastings for sure. Um, Because, you know, that's, it's important. Like, studies have shown that the more healthy relationships you have... The longer you'll live, even. Yeah. Yes, we did read about that. Uh, That was a super interesting article. Yeah, Um, for sure. 
Do you want to tell us a little bit about it? Let's see if I can actually pull it up. (laughs) Basically, Uh, I mean, saying that like... It was basically saying that for the, there was a study conducted that said that if you had, if you had those close relationships and you sort of didn't isolate or ostracize yourself from the community that you actually did live longer. And there there's stories and I know I'm always intrigued by this too, but, uh, like where there are spouses who, I mean, have each other, right. Which is great. You have that super close connection when one spouse dies, the other one dies like days later, maybe months later. And it's sort of because that person has lost their connection. They feel like they don't have anyone else and they're not surrounded. And I know that there were some other studies and anecdotes about how, you know, these, these people live so long and it's because maybe they never married uh, or anything like that, but they had such a close knit community, whether they engaged in, you know, bridge groups or cribbage. I don't know. Is that a th- I think that's a thing. I have no idea what you're I, saying right now. I think it's like an old person thing. <laughs> um, but you know, they have, they have these communities and, and I remember even my grandmother, after my grandfather passed away, she engaged in like Knights of Columbus and like hung out with like all of her old friends and like really you know, kept herself busy in that regard. Not yeah. the busy, like work respect. Yeah. Busy with like social engagements and things like that. And it was after, you know, it's like after a certain period of time, say maybe, um, you know, mobility, like just didn't ha- work anymore. Yeah. They, they really needed more assistance. So they had to move to a nursing home and it's almost instantaneous people's decline in their livelihood. It's just, it's amazing. And people pass away because they don't have that engagement anymore. Well, they don't have a will. You right. Have a will. Right. You, where there's a will, there's a way. And it, when that way is taken away is removed, then, you know, you kind of find yourself in a bad position. But again, I, I feel like I have the wrong article open, but it's, it it is amazing because they do say that you, you do live longer when you have that inner circle. Yeah. Yeah. And they're, and they're saying, you know, there was actually a study done in 2006 that said our circles, I mean, Americans are American circles of close confidence is shrunking dramatically mm. in the past two decades. And the number of people who say they have no one with whom to discuss important matters has more than doubled. That was in 2006. That was 12 years ago. I mean, social media has really expanded since then. You know, and the problem with that is that, like, that diminishes the need for face to face visits, for sure. time with friends, for time with neighbors, and that this. I mean, that and combined with work and geographical scattering that we talked about yeah. fosters like a broader network of people, however, more shallow relationships yeah, and totally. less close bonds. And so what, what, what happens then? I and mean, I th- like, yeah. And I think that it's, you know, even though you can post whatever you want to post on social media sites or whatever, it's not the same. It's not, you're not, you're not having that sort of dialogue if you will, with, yeah. with, you know, I mean, there's some people strive for those likes because they have some sort of almost like a drug. It's almost like a drug that you get <laughs> this, like you do, you yeah, get no, I'm, I definitely agree. I think that's an interesting way to put it, but it's, it's very true. Yeah. You know, and you, 
you kind of become addicted to it, right? Yes. It's yes. like a drug and you get this like a little high every time you see a certain amount of likes, but that quickly dissipates and then you do not have like these strong relationships mm-hmm. through that, that actually carry you through the hard times. And so I think, <laughs> I think the point is, and that Sebastian Younger is making is that we as a society in the, in the modern age and in the modern world, like America, are doing ourselves a disservice mm-hmm. because with technology and <clears throat> with just how we're living and with the fact that money is king and it's the dollar is, yeah. is what we strive for and that's the measurement of success. Cause I it's mean, not- yeah. And I think too, you know, the point that there's, you know, there's always, sure you have, you know, maybe more personal connections, um, with social connectivity and things like that. And, um, you're more engaged in the community. You're, you're perhaps more engaged in just society in general. Right. Um, so you probably learn a little bit more, but there's also, you know, the, the whole quote or saying, you know, there's safety in numbers. I think that that even stems back to what Sebastian was talking about with the tribes and with, you know, the native Americans and things like that. And all of these different, these different tribal communities across the world that, you know, they stick together, not just, not just for like the actual community, the affection, the compassion, the empathy, all of that stuff that you gain, but also because if you're out by yourself, who's there to, who's there to watch your back? Mm-hmm. You need yeah. someone to watch your back. You do. You need, you need more than one person. Yeah. And that's again, so you talk about your, your five, your 15, your 50, your 150. It, it, it really is, you know, um, I think a, it's an important thing and a concept to always keep in the back of your mind and think what, how am I, how am I going to benefit myself by these relationships, but also to take a step back and truly analyze like what you have in your life and maybe negotiate with yourself what, you know, monetary things that you could forego. What really matters? Hashtag. Hashtag. Who's in your tribe? <laughs> Who's in your tribe? I wish I had more wine from my yeah, tribe. Yeah, we finished. We finished that bottle. It's so good. <laughs> it was really. It really was good. I, I mean, I don't. I. I still wonder if, like, maybe we didn't do as much research. I mean, this is a great wine. Don't get me wrong. But like, if we didn't do as much research on like some of these wineries and the grapes themselves, like. Would we like them as much? I think I like that, this. That ha- no, I think that I would like this too. But it's like knowing, again, having that deeper connection with what you are putting into your body and what you're feeding your soul with just creates better things overall. I mean, like truly, better experiences, all of that. Don't you agree? I totally agree. Yeah. On that note, thanks for joining us and being part of our DBP inner circle. Yeah. <laughs> If you want to get more into our social circle, please email us at dbpcheers at gmail.com. You know what? Sure. Tag us in your wine post. Yes. Can tag, you tag at dbpcheers yes. in your wine post? Or hashtag dbpcheers. Because we want to see that shit. Yeah, we do. For we sure. want to know what you're drinking. We want to know what's in your glass. Like what's in your wallet. Okay. <laughs> All so, right. Well, thanks so much for joining us for another episode of DBP. Yes. We look forward to the next time, and happy belated Cabernet Sauvignon Day. Yeah. Cheers. 
Cheers. Tribe. Tribe. Thanks so much for listening. If you like what you hear, please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast listening platform to help spread the DBP word. Check out our website and blog at dbpcheers.com. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at dbpcheers or on the Drunk Bitches Podcast Facebook page. We'd love to hear from you, so send your questions, comments, and fun wine or topic ideas to dbpcheers at gmail.com. Until next time. Cheers Cheers from from the the girls of DBP. DBP.